0: I have been a professional Episcopalian my whole adult life, and that means that I get to hear from a lot of people about what they think the Episcopal Church is, and a whole lot of times, a whole lot of people actually don't know a whole lot at all about what the Episcopal Church is. But then there are other people that I meet that are trying to judge it, not judge it as in make a judgment, but trying to place it in a taxonomy of other Christianities that they know. And the most common response I get in that game is, Kyle, I wonder if you get this one.
1: (laughs) I've got some ideas, but why don't you go ahead?
0: (laughs) All right. So what I frequently get is oh you're catholic light yep (laughs) and then actually one time though i had a a salesian monk and um, priest say oh episcopalians you out catholic the catholics so i'm not always sure that's a helpful one but it is a taxonomy that people have one time though i had gone to see a friend who was playing in a band and the pianist in the band I knew was the pianist for one of the, you know, hip mega churches in the neighborhood where I was living. And I knew that the crowd would be a diverse group of Christian experiences. And I was doing the normal chit chat thing with someone else who was there to see the band. And this woman I was talking to says to me, Oh, Episcopalians, aren't you just Unitarians who like to dress up? Mm. And honestly, it was a thinly veiled insult repartee kind of moment. Mm. And I knew it was. But And we had a great conversation about it. But over time, that question has stuck with me because it clicks into two core parts of Episcopal of A, being a Trinitarian church, and some parts of our, what I would call our Anglican identity. And so I have invited my friend uh, Kyle Oliver to join me to talk about those two pieces about why we are not just Unitarians who like to dress up. (laughs) I am the Reverend Jane Gober. I am the rector of Christ Church in Ridley Park, Pennsylvania. And I am the host of this Write Questions podcast. And so I want to note before I let Kyle introduce himself that four years ago now, when I first had like the itty bitty seeds of this idea in mind, Kyle was a huge help in helping me flesh it out and turn it into something that um, wouldn't just me be turning on the record button somewhere. So Kyle, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, My name is Kyle Oliver, and I work as head of learning media at Learning Forte, which is a company that is helping churches and seminaries and nonprofits to uh, embrace hybrid ministry with confidence. And so, uh, doing Christian formation activities via podcast is uh, right in the strike zone of the kind of thing that. I want to spend my time doing all day, every day. So I um, enjoyed those conversations back then and uh, really glad to be here today. Uh, a fun thing about me is that I have a two-year-old who is teaching me a lot about mermaids.
0: Well, it's important to know a lot about mermaids. So I'm excited about that for you. Yes. Important information.
1: Mm-hmm. We, just, we just need to expand her um possible clothing repertoire a little bit so that um because it turns out there's not that much toddler clothing that has mermaids, some, but not enough for her to wear it every day. So that's that's what we're working on.
0: <laughs> okay. So for folks who are tuning into this for part of a confirmation process and pairing it with the book by Jennifer Gamber, My Faith, My Life, this Episode is going to pair with chapter four, um, the subtitle of which is Faith. So, I have once again asked one of my friends the impossible task of please sum up in three or four most important points two areas that have multiple people working on PhDs in tiny bits of across the world. But on the other hand, That level of knowledge about it isn't necessarily always what everyone needs when they're just coming and asking for the basic questions. So, Kyle, what's the three or four most important things to know about um, the Trinity and the Anglican identity in the Episcopal Church?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, Jennifer is a friend of mine. And so if I speak of her familiarly in the midst of this, uh, I just want to give that a little bit of context.
0: She will be one of our future guests.
1: Good. Oh, I bet. That's great. Um, well, I think this is a, a really smart and interesting chapter. And for me, you know, takeaway number one is is really about that, you know, the Episcopal Church has a statement of faith. Um, you know, I think the central claim of a chapter here is that you know the the uh, in some sense the apostles' creed is is our statement of faith, and I'll and I'll come back to that. Um but moreover, the Episcopal Church has um a, a lot of statements about uh what we believe and how we go about trying to be Christians, and some of the um sometimes playful, sometimes uh side-eye conversations that we have with people from other traditions about that comes from, I think, that, that our statements and ideas don't always look like their statements and ideas. So, like, putting my feet down in my Episcopal and Anglican identity, I think we have this very strong commitment as a body to as traditional a statement of faith as you can find in these creeds, right? That that's, that's what these creeds are, are sort of there for is to, you know, carry the essential teachings of this faith that has been, you know, handed down to us and has been reflected about for, you know, generation after generation in councils, in prayer, in congregations, uh, all the rest. And so, you know, to me, I don't think there's anything wrong with the idea that a church might put a statement of faith up on their website, and it might be, you know, a statement of faith for that congregation. Um, You know, and I I think there's a place for that. I think there's a place for Episcopal and Anglican churches to do that if they want. But... But that's the novelty like that's what's um, that's what's to me is the is the sort of deviation from the tradition the the tradition is we have these creeds um and I, I think Jennifer you know makes makes that point and and I, I think that's how we should begin any conversation with someone of any faith about what Episcopalians and, and Anglicans believe which is that we believe what Christians believe. <laughs> as mediated, um, you know, in large part by these these documents. I think that's thing number one.
0: One of the life-giving things about that that Jennifer remarks on in the book is these are um, statements that were made across time and in community. And so it's not just one era's interpretation or understanding that is reflected in it. But then on the other hand, we have hundreds and hundreds of years of people encountering these statements with their lives and their trust and knowledge of Jesus and God and the spirit. And sometimes putting new clothing on how they understand these statements.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So thing two for me, I think, and here comes the Trinity connection. And this is not an original idea of, of mine, you know, or, or Jennifer's or, or, or whatever. And I, I may be sort of extrapolating a little bit from, from the chapter. But, you know, to me, I think in some sense, in addition to being a statement of faith in the ways that I just outlined, I think the creeds are also uh, the way I've put it on occasion is they are the story of a name, you know, they are the story of God's name and the ways that the church over time have come to know and address God, um, or, you know, at least part part of that story, and, and the story has continued. So, you know, the structure, as Jennifer discusses, of these creeds is um, that we have a, a sort of section about God the Father, to use the traditional um, and gendered language, uh, God the Son, uh, and God the Holy Spirit. And then there are sort of like sub clauses there, right? And, you know, I think it's appropriate as we're thinking about theology and and Writing theologies of of the Trinity and and having these conversations, I think it's it's appropriate to think about things like subclauses and propositional truths and and whatever. But in some sense, it seems to me that that's not how we got there. We got there through the the sort of like unfolding relationship of God, relationship with God that humanity um, uh, later. Abrahamic faiths and Judaism, uh, you know, later um, uh, Christians, I've said that a little weird, but I think you know what I mean. Um, The experience of, of God that we've had as we've unfolded, right? So, you know, I believe in God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth, right? We human beings in a primordial sense, and I would argue still in an ongoing intellectual reflection sense, have this notion that we were, created you know and we were created in an immediate sense by parents but you know i think we just have this belief deep down many of us that that the the sort of chain if you will of creation um, goes you know goes back through ancestors and is ultimately connected to something someone really big and so we go to language that connects those two things right um creation, parenting, I believe in God, the father, you know, um, so, so that, that's the sort of first part of our experience, um, as human beings in some sense. Right. And then the, ch- the church, uh, a group of folks that, you know, coalesced, uh, around Jesus of Nazareth in ancient near Eastern Palestine. <laughs> um, uh, and, had a particular experience of Jesus and of 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 Jesus' continuing presence. More on that continuing presence in a moment, um, and came to believe some things about Jesus, and and what they came to believe evolved over time, uh, as as scholars have told us in looking at how the scriptures were formed, and then of course what we've traced through in the church history about. Uh, how those creeds got written and what we decided was was right to say about jesus um and then pentecost happens you know after jesus death and and all of a sudden god is present to us in a new way and we slowly come to call that way the holy spirit the holy spirit somehow makes Jesus present to us but but isn't i think maybe i'm tiptoeing into heresy here but you know isn't just that um uh is is um is a is a third person in this trinity that that we're sort of like starting to get our heads around as the story unfolds and that the spirit is in a particular kind of relationship with the church uh in such a way that the spirit is is sort of guiding us into all truth right and and the spirit is shaping among other things, the the teachings and practice of the church, which is why all the stuff about church is in that third section of the creed. So that was longer than I meant to go. But my point is that it doesn't take that much historical awareness to look at the creed as in a narrative way rather than in a propositional theology way as as, as a kind of chronicle of human beings and ultimately Christians understanding of God through our relationship with God. So that's thing two. I don't know if you want to say more about that.
0: (laughs) Um, I was thinking actually about your tiptoeing into heresy about the Holy Spirit, and that honestly, it's a mystery, and the entire Trinity is such a mystery, that even if we do get it terribly wrong, we can't hurt God by getting it wrong terribly. We can just, uh, you know, uh, maybe deform one another's formation by that. But, um, you and I are both formation people and educators, and we know that some of the learning happens through trying out things that turn out to not match the long-term learning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, that's thing two that I would want to emphasize. um, Thing three, uh, forgive me for asking this now, uh, Jane, and not b- before we started, but in the chapter that you shared, there was all, at the end, there was like a worksheet about Anglicanism. Is that in the book or is that separate from the book?
0: That was separate from the book.
1: Okay. So I'm going to depart from the book here a little bit and and engage. I, I think primarily more, you know, on the on the topic of, of Anglicanism here.
0: And just for our listeners, it was a summary from a book called "A People Called Episcopalians" by John Westerhoff. So, anyway, that's what Kyle is ta- alluding to.
1: Yeah, and I I actually don't have any like very specific concrete things to say about the sheet per se. Although I I appreciate what's there and encourage everyone to take a look at it. I think it it won't be a surprise to many um to say that for me the kind of most important thing about Anglicans um and you know in this country about episcopalians because we are the, the we together with provinces in some other countries um form this thing called the Episcopal Church which is part of the Anglican communion and to me the most important thing about about who we are is that we um we have this doctrine, and I have looked it up. This doctrine is in the Roman Catholic Catechism. Um, but we have this, um, we wouldn't probably call it a doctrine. We would just call it probably an ethos, a style, um, that uh, the Latin, the fancy Latin phrase is lex orandi, lex credendi, right? Which which literally means like the rule of prayer is the rule of belief. Um, and practically means that we believe that in a really significant way, our prayer shapes our belief. And so that, I think, kind of doubles us back to point number one, in that, you know, like, we encounter these creeds first and primarily in the context of worship, um, and so some of us might sing them on occasion in church or, or every week in church. I've been a part of churches that, that have done that, and that sort of changes the vibe a little bit uh, um, of, of, you know, singing the Nicene Greed" gives you a different sort of experience of it. Um, but you know we sort of say like okay this it starts in worship and i think what i would want to say it starts in like prayer more broadly it's it's a statement of faith but it but it is also a prayer and we experience it in worship and so like a third translation and maybe it's a little glib but i think we could do worse a third very loose translation of lex orandi lex credendi might be something like fake it till you make it and <laughs> And I, I don't literally mean fake it. In fact, I think what is sort of genius about Anglicanism is that we 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 don't want to put people in a position where you feel like you have to fake it. Um but it does, but we do, I think, say, like, try this on. <laughs> we're gonna say and when we say it in church, we're gonna say we believe, and a bunch of us are gonna say it. Um, and so I think yeah, I'm certainly not the first person to say that you know if there's something that you're struggling with let the other people in the room carry that right now um uh and you know but 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 there's a sense here of you know we're not going to point you to the statement on the website and say if this isn't working for you then come back when it does <laughs> or don't come back um uh and we're not i i I think going to do much or hopefully anything that treats you like a sort of second class member of our church. Right. And this really can, this, that point has a near and dear place in my heart because I am just really interested in these questions of, um, affiliation that lots of people are struggling with right now? Should you, you know, should you be a member of a church? Do you claim that? How is that connected to the belief? You know, all that, all that kind of thing. And I believe there are an awful lot of people in a lot, awful lot of churches, Episcopal and otherwise, who don't believe it all, or maybe don't believe any of it. And they still have a really meaningful experience in their um, life of that church, you know, maybe that's singing in the choir. I've met folks like that. Maybe that's serving in the food pantry. I've met folks like that. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's something else. Um, but I think they are having a meaningful experience, and and I think they are often um, giving a lot to our communities in a way that we should love and cherish and appreciate. <laughs> and so. So, for me, this notion within Anglicanism that says, we have a statement of faith, and the statement of faith is an invitation and not a membership card. Um, to me, that's uh, that's I, I, I was born an Episcopalian. Um, I grew up in in this denomination, but you know, so I can't say that's why I've came, uh, that's why I've come, but that's certainly why I've stayed. Um, that strikes me as a very human, very adult uh very creative very open minded um way of being and believing and you know there are a lot of there are a lot of approaches to faith but that's the kind of approach that I want and I like hanging out with others who tend to be in that camp as well
0: your um wonderful Fake It Till You Make It glib translation um actually reminds me of a it's an a series of essays by Stanley Hauerwas about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, where he dives into the idea of performance as in like acting performance, and that when you're really acting and really performing, you're not um, you, it may not be your life that you're displaying, but you're not keeping it separate from your emotions and your intellect and so on. And that some of what we offer through our pageantry and through our sacraments and through our materialness of worship styles is a way to bodily practice something, whether or not you have it all figured out or whether or not it's even necessarily your experience or something you understand. And so that fake it till you make it is sort of a performing the faith while you make your way through life.
1: And that that includes our bodies. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think that's something Anglicanism is especially in touch with.
0: Yeah, we really, we do. And it's, um, When you and I were growing up, um, there was a lot about, you know, Episcopal aerobics as the glib way. I actually think the language of yoga is really helpful of bodily intention, of um, the ways in which we make our choices in relation to the readings and the prayers and so and the singing and so on is a way of setting a physical intention with our body. The same with even um, you could even pull that all the way out into some of the processes of how we worship, of you know uh, the way in which most of our churches prioritize how we read the gospel through a procession, through how the book is held, Um, and that that adds to that in most of these settings, or at least in all the ones I've been in regularly. Everybody's body changes when we get to the readings about Jesus' his life and death and resurrection.
1: I I'm so glad you said that because um, I've been having a profound experience of that in my role. I am I'm not currently serving a Sunday morning uh, congregation, so I attend the church that my wife is the rector of, and a shout out to St. Lawrence in Libertyville, Illinois. And I attend with our two-year-old daughter, and I hang out in the soft space with her so the service goes on and I find that I have a better chance of keeping Fiona engaged. I mean, she's two. So getting her engaged with much more than like understanding that at some point there's going to be the cookie and she's excited about that. Um, like, and at some points mommy's going to stand up there and daddy might have to take her out. Cause she refuses to not uh, let mommy do her work. <laughs> um, that's pretty much her understanding of the, of the, order of the service at this point, but of course I have a deeply embodied understanding of it, right? Because I've been doing the Episcopal aerobics since I was a little older than her, <laughs> but I have decided that the way that I can help keep her, you know, in, in the moment, even if in the moment means like playing with whatever toy in this soft space, uh, she's currently playing with the best way for me to do that is not to participate in the aerobics, right? Cause I'm down here with her often sitting on the floor, often, playing with whatever she's playing with you know, together with her. But I can feel in my body when I'm not doing the thing that I've been doing all my life, and I feel it as an invitation on my better days, uh, and maybe on the days when Fiona's being a bit more cooperative, I feel it as an invitation to set that intention and just set it in a different way, right? Like there's something super weird about remaining seated when the gospel procession is starting if you are, you know, if you've been doing it all your life and you have a body that that lets you participate in that, you know, sort of typical practice for for those whose bodies do that. So it feels really weird to me. And so my brain says do something else, again, on my better days, do something else in terms of my intention to, you know, join in the community in that particular moment. So I, I think the comparison to yoga and the, f- the focus on intentionality both points out that in some sense, the aerobics are totally arbitrary, of course, um, you know, which many people have said, right? And different denominations have aerobics, but slightly different ones. I think, um, what is it, Presbyterians don't, I think Presbyterians pray seated, or I don't know, I forget. I had a Presbyterian who once broke down the difference for me. She's like, here's when Episcopalians sit, stand, and kneel, and here's when Presbyterians sit, stand, and kneel, and it's slightly different for each. Of course it's arbitrary, right? Maybe not completely arbitrary. We have an idea about what these postures sort of mean in some way. But but just that we do it, just that we're practicing, just that we're actively setting that intention, in some sense, is the much more important thing.
0: It really is. So I gave you three or four. do you have a fourth?
1: you know i I don't have a distinct fourth um but if I were to say one more very brief thing about Anglicanism, I think I would say that there is I can't remember the author or the title of the book, which makes this a completely worthless launch point, but someone wants compared for me the uh, talking about that difference between the Episcopal Church and the Catholic Church as something like the difference between Plato and Aristotle, which of course is not a super helpful metaphor necessarily. Uh, if you don't know Plato and Aristotle, but let's let's say, something like the difference between math and science maybe that's a little more accessible right in math we start from a few different axioms and we build them up in a super systematic way and uh, consistency is incredibly important uh the sort of internal rigor of the thing is what makes the thing work but of course there are other ways of having knowledge about the world um and uh, the scientific tradition has come along, and rather than taking that deductive approach, taking a more inductive approach of saying, sort of like, try it out, do an experiment, try to repeat it. You know, of course, science has particular ideas about reproduci- reproducibility and and you know rigor and all the rest. And I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to call theology a science. I'm not you know. But but
0: but actually, that metaphor really works, yeah, because of the similarities and differences with both of those two denominations yeah. you just named. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: yeah. I think it's a helpful metaphor if we keep it constrained to this this kind of and and we could do worse than to say deductive versus inductive. Uh, but there but there's something about something that I that there's something maddening to lots of people, and some of them ultimately decide that they need to go somewhere else, and that's and and that's great. Um, but there's there's something. Maddening to some, but very encouraging to me that says if we find a point where there is like an internal inconsistency, that, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that the, the theorem we've just, you know, tried to prove is, you know, is invalid. That doesn't, you know, like the sort of, um, the, the sort of stance or orientation or attitude toward, toward the stuff, it's not any less serious, but. To me, the invitation isn't, the invitation isn't think harder and more rigorously, but rather keep trying, keep reflecting, keep trying to make sense of what's going on. And, you know, maybe you'll integrate a few more of the things that don't make sense together as your life goes on, and maybe you won't, and then that's ultimately no danger to God either. Um, I don't know if that portrayal is is, is completely fair. I, I have plenty of Catholic friends who would probably say something similar. Again, I'm not trying to speak too, um, in terms of too rigid a category, but but I think we could do worse than that metaphor. You
0: and I are not writing any doctrinal statements no, right no. now about interfaith relations. Yes, so exactly, good, or exactly. ecumenical relations. Um, so. My next question is, and you've alluded to a lot of it, especially in talking about your experience of changing your um, bodily practice with your daughter, but how can someone make or try, try is probably a better word, try to have the, um, these, this reflection on um, the Trinity and Anglican identity be a little more concrete in their life?
1: I'll give you a, I'll give you a story. I, until fairly recently, well, until about a year ago, uh, lived in San Francisco and had the great uh, pleasure of being a member and occasional um, preacher and presider at St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church there, which some people listening to this may know. It's a um, very experimental uh, church. I think it's fair to say they would say that... um, they in their liturgy have um, tried to lean into some of some of the kinds of insights that have been held more strongly by uh, Eastern Christian traditions rather than Western, um, and more public forms of Christian worship rather than more sort of privatized. Um, I, I think that's a fair statement of their self-understanding.
0: I described them as ornately innovative from deep traditions.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely from deep traditions. And one of the things that you do at St. Gregory's uh, is dance. Uh, again, and and bodies work different ways, and St. Gregory's makes uh, a lot of room for people with different kinds of bodies to dance in, in different kinds of ways in, in that space. But there's a time in the service where you walk from uh, the area where the liturgy of the word has happened to where the liturgy of the table happens, uh, and that's a kind of communal movement. Uh, so there's there's a communal piece already, which uh, which I love. And then um, in, in uh, at the at the end of the service, maybe more than just that, and certainly at more than just that on Easter, then there's some dancing around the table uh, in in a circle. And the image there, and, and the image is matched by iconography all around the room of, of saints, uh, saints understood quite broadly from uh, the history of the church and the history of humanity, um, and they're dancing with you. <laughs> um, and part of what that is trying to evoke is this idea of, I believe the Greek word is, is perichoresis, which is this kind of mutual dance and so, for me, that insight—which you know—I'm no theologian, but my understanding is that this is a Eastern theology specialty here. This emphasis in the in the writing on the Trinity, uh, on this mutual dance of the Spirit, this really like dynamic vision of what what does the Trinity mean—I find really helpful and. Because, you know, again, dancing is an embodied thing, and it's an evocative thing. And so if you asked me, like, how can I live the doctrine of the Trinity more in my everyday life, I guess I would say, you know, in some sense, like, dance more, (laughs) Um, by which I mean, appreciate the dynamic, interdependent nature of your relationships with others and with God and that appreciation will help you know a little something in an analogous way maybe about what god's relationship you know within the trinity might might sort of mean right we like we think that that the members of the trinity are dancing are like you know like both powerful and interdependent i mean that's like incredibly incredibly powerful and I think invites us to live likewise and it, it, we could do a lot worse I think in this world to think of ourselves as both powerful and interdependent um, and to to try to live our lives uh, in that same way and you know in this country we tend to do pretty good at the thinking of ourselves as powerful thing um, not so much the thinking of ourselves as interdependent thing <laughs> uh, and so, that, I would say, is the challenge of the Trinity, is the challenge to um, be in vulnerable community um, with ultimately everyone, but it, particularly the people that um, we find ourselves in proximity to every day.
0: One of the ways that encouragement really works, and for folks who haven't experienced St. Gregory's, is that um, when Kyle says dance, it's not like a mosh pit. It's not like a freeform thing. The dances are actually taught and it's a deliberate pattern of bodily movement, a lot rather like some of the Regency era dances or community folk dances um, from across the world. So it's something that's taught and shaped and prescribed through community. It's not just everyone doing their own wild thing in the same space. Um, And that a lot of what we have going on in our life together as the body of Christ Um, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in community is this mix of creativity and a methodic approach. And there's freedom and there's revelation and there's like support throughout all of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Structure actually creates more creates more freedom not less which is uh, a, a counterintuitive idea but i like deeply believe it to be true uh, in fact i'm trying to remember what author i'm thinking of oh this is uh, this is who it is it's a it's a guy who i quote some in my dissertation this guy named bruno latour and the way he tries to show this that like more structure is is actually more for makes more attachments make us more free he talks about the idea of a marionette right like a marionette with two strings is like not a particularly interesting marionette a marionette with like ten strings like all of a sudden has a lot more you know liveness to it yeah um so and and but i but you know and he's a he's like a sociologist right but but he's making this point that um we uh we have certain western notions that think about freedom as being like freedom from attachments and commitments but actually more attachments means more articulation more gratefulness and and like ultimately like a a more meaningful opportunity to be who we who we really are, um, you know, to be our full Marinetti, um, articulated selves.
0: That was beautiful. So to review your four points, the four points you named were, number one, that we have a statement of faith of the apost- baptismal creed and the apostles' creed, which grounds us, which happened over time and community. Secondly, that the Trinity is a story of a name. I think that's really beautiful language of around um, what it means to um, how we know God and how we address God and how that story has changed over time. Number
1: three. Yeah. I would say the Trinity is kind of that. And the creeds are kind of that too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And then third point was about how prayer shapes belief. We fake it till we make it. um, That there is a bodily practice that can inform what we may not understand. And then lastly, I'm going to do a big twist on what you said, but I think it's accurate, is that in the Anglican tradition, we're encouraged to continue the experiment, but within prescribed methods.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's really well said. Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, Thank you so much for joining me, Um, and thank you again for your help with my shaping of this Right Questions series. I couldn't have gotten this far without you. And I'm going to wrap it up with a prayer from the prayer book, but I'm also going to slightly adapt it because it's a structure within which to encounter God. So let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds so fill our imaginations, so nurture our wills, that we may be wholly yours, always dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you would, and always for your glory and the welfare of your entire creation, through Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.
1: Good good adaptations. I love it. Amen.